What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Editor Brian Wagner, and kids, you better pull those belts extra tight this week because we have arguably the greatest drag racer in the history of sport, Big Daddy Don Garlitz, on the show this week. Don, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. It th- This is so surreal to me on so many levels, you know, growing up watching you race, getting your autograph, seeing you on TV, and now being able to interview you and hear you tell your stories. I mean, have you ever sat back and really wondered how many generations of racers that you've really influenced? No, I never really thought about that too much, but I I, I see the, re, the, uh, the results. A lot of people stopped by the museum, older people, and they, they said, I got them into racing. To me, that's just like the the ultimate. I think I don't even know how I've word like the the ultimate tribute to what you did over the years is just how many people that you've influenced to want to be a part of the sport, especially considering you know how long ago you started and the longevity of it. It's it's truly amazing. Yeah, well, it probably influenced a lot more in the early days because in those days anybody could get into the sport that wanted to. It wasn't expensive. You just went out to the junkyard, got you an old car, you'd buy these cars right out of the junkyard, and you picked them up and you went racing, and everybody had a good time. And uh, anybody that wanted to race could race if they didn't mind working hard. And uh, of course, it's all different now. You still got to work hard, but you got to have a lot of money besides. Now, I-, I was doing a little bit of research on you, doing some digging around, and you know, let's I guess you know kind of dispel the rumor or the idea and kind of talk about this is that you didn't just magically start racing dragsters you started out racing full body cars like most people and then you made the switch to running dragsters what kind of drew you to want to race a dragster well I, I, I raced Fords 40 Fords and then I had a 36 Ford Coupe and then I had a 27 Ford Model T Roadster, and I turned that into a dragster. And then, of course, that dragster evolved from a 110-mile-an-hour car all the way up to the 300-mile-an-hour cars. It was a long procession, many years. That's just, now that you say that, that is absolutely mind-blowing to think about, that you started out going, you know, 100 miles an hour all the way up to 300. That's... That is such an amazing like span of numbers that it had to be just wild to be a part of that that growth of the sport. Oh, it's uh, it's a good feeling to to be part of something that that I, I never. A lot of people said, you know, when I was drag racing, that ain't never going to amount to nothing. Nobody's ever going to like drag racing, and I, I I told them. I'm not doing it because somebody else likes it. I'm doing it because I like it, and I'm enjoying it. And the few guys that we raced, we all loved it. We wanted to race our cars that we drove on the street, and you couldn't drive, race them on the street. Uh, we did some, but it, you know, you got in a lot of trouble. So the drag trip was the perfect answer for that. We went to the drags, and we raced all we wanted to, and nobody got into trouble. Nobody got hurt, and it was a good, clean sport. And uh, it was that way for many, many years. It was, uh, I would say, around 1964 is when the big change started happening. The 
and it started to get national attention and uh then the sponsors got involved now that's interesting because that'll kind of dovetail into my next question that that's about the time and date that when nitro was essentially recognized and legalized by the nhra wasn't it yeah well that's when nhra brought nitro back they originally ran nitro in the original races you know in the early 50s and nobody ever gave up nitro the the guys just didn't go to nhra they went over to the ahra and the dri and a couple other or international timing association they all ran nitro it was only the nhra that banned it that was a mistake on their part and they 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 later knew that okay they actually thought that what's going to happen when they banned it that that would be the end of it that Everybody would come over and run gas, and uh, that'd be the end of Nitro. But we love Nitro. We didn't want to give it up. We, uh, there's nothing nicer sound than a nitromethane-powered engine, and we loved it. And so consequently, we didn't give it up, and it gave us opportunity. The AHRA is the one that survived it. They, they're the ones that made the most out of NHRA being in Nitro. And then, of course, later the IHRA was formed. That was an argument between Wally Parks and Larry Carey that caused that to happen. And uh, they became a very viable organization. But in the end, it all settled out, and there's only the NHRA now for all practical purposes. You know, this is something I I, want to get your take on, you know, or hear the story. What was your first experience with Nitro? You know, kind of what what got, what made you go? Wow, that sounds cool, and you know that's loud and smells awesome. You know, what drew you towards it? Well, Hot Rod Magazine uh, had the stories about the nitromethane in the cars. You know, it uh, was used out on the West Coast, and uh, I was running alcohol in my flathead, and uh, I don't know who told me. Somebody said you could put about ten percent nitromethane in there wouldn't hurt it it would pick up about 10 percent power well if you had 150 160 horse engine has 16 20 more horse and you could tell that and so i tried it and it worked just fine it didn't hurt anything it uh engine still ran good and didn't damage it and we finally got it up to about 25 percent and still it ran decent and didn't hurt itself it was only when you get up into the big loads that it really messed it up and uh, even for a long time i only ran 25 percent in the the chrysler because i didn't know how to get any more nitro in there because it's just running on stromberg carburetors and all we did was put in big you know had the big alcohol dump tubes and great big jets and that's about all you could do and it wasn't until i met cook and bedwell at cordova in 1957 that they told me about taking the dump tubes out and drilling them out and putting quarter-inch tubes in their place. And that gave you 187 ID dump tubes and don't even run any jets. And just dump the whole can in there with a couple of ounces of Benny to help it burn and uh, flood the engine and away you go. And that, that was it. That was the trick, how to go fast. Wow. that You know, to me, it's amazing to hear you talk about that. And, like, that's like, you know – the akin of man discovering fire racers, discovering how to use nitro. And I'm sure back in the day, there was a lot of, uh, kind of a lot of hard lessons learned when trying to make nitro work. Wasn't there? 
Well, the bean bandits are to be given credit for the, the actual pioneering and all of that. They're the ones that told Cook how to do it after they learned how to do it. They're the ones, you know, they went 140 miles an hour in a quarter mile long before anybody ever even thought about speeds like that with a flathead on 100% nitro. They learned how to do it. They were smart bunch of boys down here in San Diego. So what were your early experiences and, you know, experimentations with, you know, trying to learn to make a nitro engine, do what you wanted to do, trying to, trying to tame that beast? Well, I never had any trouble with it at all. Like I said, because I started off with the uh, low percentages. I worked up to about, actually had about 40% when I got to Cordova. And when Cook told me what to do to my carburetors, I just put the 100% right in the tank, just like he said, and I never had any trouble with it at all. Oh. I never had any any uh, problems. Uh, you know, I never backfired any motors and tore anything up. And I never put hydrazine in my nitro. A few guys did, but uh, I was never a party to any of that. And because uh, I was, uh, I was funny about that kind of stuff. If if the fuel was considered dangerous and explosive, I thought that was maybe a bit good idea to stay away from it. So I never messed with hydrazine or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Just, benzene to help it burn and then alcohol to mix it hydrazine was some nasty stuff back in the day that caused a lot of carnage yes it did it blew up a lot of nice parts yeah that again it's you know racers were really good at you know experimenting and, and kind of tearing stuff up along the way as they try to do it right and they hurt a lot of people too they got hurt in some of these accidents now you know the early days of drag racing were way different than what we, you know, kind of see now, you know, they, they were more, they, they were called meets versus races kind of give us a history lesson on what it was like going to those events and, you know, what it was like to race in them, you know, these, these big, you know, meets and events that you guys used to go to. Well, in the beginning, everybody was just out there having fun and uh, we worked on each other's cars and people helped, they loaned motors back and forth. And uh, this was before the days of big sponsorship. And uh, it, it was not uncommon for a guy to borrow another motor from a guy to be able to run the last round. Somebody that got beat in the first round, motor was still good, borrow that motor for the final to try to win the race. And uh, everybody would pitch in and try to help. Like at uh, the last race there, the, the AHRA championship at Kansas City in 1959, I broke a fuel pump drive in the semifinal as the car went through the lights. And, and my competitor come over, Bob Sullivan, and loaned me parts. Uh, and the Greek loaned me parts. And we all fixed the car together for the final. That That's awesome, that, that spirit. and You know, you, you still see it today, but it seems like that it was really a lot more prevalent back in, in the early days of the sport. Yeah, you know, they wouldn't want anybody. They wouldn't want any of the competitors over in the pits. They might see something that some trick they got. It's uh, very competitive now. And I think too, you know, I always like going to nostalgia events and, and kind of, you know, at the Detroit Autorama, they always have a really cool display of like vintage drag racing cars. And I look at the stuff and look at where we started and where we are now. It, it's truly amazing. You guys were innovators and pioneers. You were engineers without engineering degrees in some points. What was, you know, what was it like to, you know, have to develop those parts to be able to go faster versus nowadays 
You know, you can make a few well, clicks and put a credit card and buy it. It was a lot of fun. I, I love making new parts and trying new ideas. And, you know, you talk about that going out there and see how the sport evolved. I, I can walk through that museum anytime and, and see all the crude, primitive stuff from the beginning, what it's turned into today. Because we, we have the cars from all the eras, uh, plenty of them. You know, you can really see how the, the sport advanced over the years. And it was a lot of fun making new parts. I'd love to come to the race with a completely new idea. And uh, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But when it, even when it didn't work, you learned something. And uh, see, you can't do that today. You, you can't come there with anything new on a top fuel dragster. That's why I have the electric car, because it's still kind of wide open and you can do pretty much what you like. And that's exciting to me. You know, you just sparked my memory on something that I'd, I'd like to get your take on is uh, when, when you were playing with the the new front tires on one of your Swamp Rats. And I remember watching the videos, you know, seeing it growing up. And then I just recently rewatched the video about, you know, you talking to Steve Evans and the changes you were making trying to run those experimental front tires. Yeah. Kind of talk about that because there's a lot of people that might not either know about that or necessarily remember what that was like when you came out with those experimental front tires. Well, it all started at Indy the uh, the year before at Indy, 1985. I was down in the tower at the far end, and I could see the funny cars come through and where they had put rice ash on the track. The funny car wasn't disturbing that rice ash till it got almost right on top of it. But the fuel dragsters believe it or not, with those open wheels were actually disturbing the rice ash 30 feet in front of the car. Oh, wow. So that means that the front tires will have to pump air 30 feet in front of the car. So that's a lot of wind resistance. So I had a, had a dream that I made little bitty tires and wheels and covered them. And so I, when I woke up, I remembered that dream. And I went to work on making small tires and rims and covered them over with a body. And uh, McGarry made the body for me. And uh, we built the wheels right here in the shop and uh, put by, uh, fan belts on them. But that, that didn't work. When, when, as long as you were underway, that was good. But the minute that all the weight shifted forward when you backed off, and the full weight of the front end went down on the front wheels along with the wind pressure that was on that nose piece. That nose piece developed about 350 pounds of down pressure. And now all of that was too much for the fan belts, and it would throw them off in the, front, in the shutoff area. So I got through the Gator Nationals with it, just patching the car up between rounds and putting new belts on. But then as soon as that was over, I had a friend of mine here in Ocala, mold polyurethane on the wheels instead of the belts and i took that to atlanta and that worked just fine but the problem was it was like a solid front wheel and atlanta was bumpy in the shutoff so it made the ride a little rough down there so at that point i realized i needed a pneumatic tire and a little airplane tire was going to be just the ticket so i went and bought me a couple of airplane tires and i had the guy that was making the rear wheels for me, Streaker, I think they were, the name of them. He made me the two front wheels and to fit an Anglia spindle. And so that's 
what we put on. We installed that whole system on the car in the pits at Bakersfield in 1986 and won the race. And that that was it. They were nice and smooth, nice in the shutoff. Everything about them was good. But then Goodyear got upset because I was using a tire for a different purpose than it was designed for. And so they designed tires then to go on the little front wheels, and that became the garlic tire that they call it. And uh, we ran those for quite a few years until the speeds got so high that it, the small wheel increased the wheel bearing speed so bad. We had trouble with wheel bearings. And so that's when they got went back to the great big special front tires. <laughs> so we started out at fan belts and ended up at airplane tires yeah. and then having Goodyear design tires. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's amazing. Like, what you know? What what did your competitors think of some of these ideas that you would roll up to the track with? You know, would would people just magically stop by your pit to say hi to say what what this guy come up with this week? Well, the competitors hated all this stuff. They hated everything I came up with, and uh, they they fought tooth and nail against it. Because uh, number one, they don't like change, and number two, they they didn't know whether it was going to be an advantage or not. A lot of times, it was an advantage. And uh, it's just uh, it's just one of those things you have to live with. Most of the competitors, I was actually friends with them, kind of, but they, they didn't like me all that much because of all this different controversy and the canopies and wings and mono wings, and little tires and all kind of stuff. You know, I, I was always thinking outside the box, and that was the key to my success you know that that's kind of one thing i wanted to ask you about was you know a creator's mindset did did you would you just look at something and kind of cock your head and go i think there's a way to make that faster how, how did you come up with some of these ideas well i always did it like this i i would look at the, the present car what it's doing and the cars before it and what what is the difference? What What is the difference? And generally speaking, whatever that change has taken place from the slower cars to the faster cars previous, you can pretty much figure that that change, if you keep making that change going forward, it will make it faster. And I mean, a good example is out of the wheelbase. We kept sticking the wheelbase out there and the cars kept getting faster until finally NHRA said 300 inches, that's all you can have. If they hadn't said that, they'd be 400-inch cars right now, and they would look very normal. Interesting. Was there any times that, you know, you could tell us about where uh, you and the NHRA tech department weren't exactly on the best of terms because of an idea you came up with that they just were like, they just absolutely said this ain't going to fly? Well, yeah, there's all kinds of things that happened with me and NHRA. I, when I came to that Pomona with the wing in 1963, Jack Hart came over and looked at it and practically said I was crazy, you know. And I told him, I said, you'll live to see the day that everybody's got a wing. And uh, But they let me run, you know. And uh, there was other things, little things that they did. and We had arguments over. And uh, the fuel rails was a big one. I always ran my fuel through the bottom rail in the car. 
because there was this big tube just there for the asking, why have another tube when you've already got a tube going from the front of the car to the back of the car? It's no problem at all to tap into it, make it a fuel rail. And my cars in the museum, they were had fuel in the rails for years and years. And then when I come up there to Gainesville in 2002 and I had the fuel in the rails on Swap Red 34, Ray Alley, I said, well, you can't have fuel in the rails. That's dangerous. And I said, how is it dangerous? He, and he couldn't explain that to me because there, nobody had any crashes. I mean, every car that crashed, the fuel line breaks and the fuel goes everywhere. So what difference does it make where it's at? And um, finally, to, to, for me to run, Tom Compton had to tell him, it's personal, isn't it, Ray? You just don't like the idea. You can't show me where it's dangerous. Let him run. And so, fortunately, because of that <laughs> nice Mr. Compton, I got to run my car for a couple of years. That's never heard that story. That's kind of interesting. And, you know, you mentioned the canopy thing. And, you know, that these days is, you know, you see it on a lot of the cars. D do you feel kind of vindicated now that people are, you know, running those as the norm versus the exception? I didn't understand that question. I'm sorry. Oh, no. no. You, you know, you mentioned that people, you know, originally they weren't happy running a canopy on the car. And now you look at most of the the fastest of the fast top fuel cars and they all run canopies now. That That's kind well, of was, interesting. It's, it's safer. I mean, my God, you, you know, the reason I put a canopy on my car in 1985 at Brainerd, a water bug. <coughs> hit me in the helmet, in the face, just a big water bug. Oh. And, I mean, it was quite an impact. And I thought to myself, what, if this had been a bird, I'd have been hurt. And we need canopies on these cars. And so next the next year's car had a canopy. Again, that's why, you know, a, a simple water bug kind of caused, yeah. you know, a major yeah, change. They're pretty good size, you know, they're, they're couple three inches in diameter oh yeah ask anybody on a motorcycle that's hit, hit a good size book it gets your attention in a hurry right yeah yes sir now you, i didn't realize how many you know speed record marks that you had set you know from basically 170 up to 270 you were the first person to break that in a quarter mile and then 200 in the eighth mile kind of looking back at that now were you fixated on setting those records, or were they just a byproduct of you just trying to be the fastest person around? I wanted to be the fastest because in drag racing in the beginning, there was no ET god. It was speed. They had speed clocks. They didn't even line them up real straight. There was nothing. They just brought In fact, they went from a roll, and then the guy pulled the flag when he thought they were about even. And they, they never were right on the quarter mile, but they had clocks down at the end that clocked them. And the speed always told you the horsepower that one guy had over the next. If one guy had more mile per hour, more likely he had more power. So we love speed, and I always love speed. And um, so it also is another sign that you have a happy motor going through the trap. It's running on all eight, and it's it's running good. And so I was always, I I tuned my car by the speed, 
And, of course, the clutch and all has to do with the ET, how the car leads off the line. But the speed is, is tells you the story of the engine. If, is it happy or not? Oh, definitely. Is there any one of those particular mile an hour records that is like the favorite of yours or the one that just really is like the one you'd like, you really like to hang your, your hat on as an accomplishment? Yeah. The 250.69 at Ontario, California, that was the, the milestone in drag racing. That record stood for seven years and, uh, I was really happy about that. It's, uh, you got a lot of publicity in those days. You got points for the mile per hour and ET records. I set them both 5.63 seconds, 259, 250.69 miles per hour. And, of course, the 272 at Gainesville in 1986 was great, too. But it wasn't near as exciting as that 250 at Ontario. That had a, you, could, you could actually make a movie about that whole just that one year in drag racing, you could make a movie about it. It'd be really great. What were some of the big things that happened in that year to you that would make it such an awesome movie? Well, we there were three associations running, IHRA, AHRA, and NHRA. And I ran all three associations. And one year, I won number one in two of the associations and finished second in the third, I almost won the triple crown. That was the closest anybody ever got to it. But in 1975, that was the first year that they ran, NHRA ran the points, an only national event, and you had to go around the country and get your points. And there was a big prize at the end of the rainbow. I take it back. You did do, You could go to some points races. Yeah, you could go to some point races still. It wasn't all just national events, but they did have a big prize at the end of the year. I think it was $25,000, which was a lot of money back then. And so it was kind of nip and tuck with me and Gary Beck, but it looked like I was going to win because I was picking up points on him. And uh, at Fremont, uh, Bernie Potridge was the uh, – event director and it was a 16 car field and there was points and so it, the race got delayed because of some weather conditions and the race got into the night and so on the semifinal round me and jerry ruth come up to the line up to the stage and, and neither of our competitors showed up and this would be for the third round and um Bernie Partridge said, it's getting late, boys. Your competitors are not here. Why don't you just run each other, and that'll be the winner. And I'll give you – you'll get the same amount of points as if you'd ran – just made a single right now, each of you, and then come back and ran. He says, I'd like to get it over with. Everybody wants to go home. So we did that. Well, they posted the points in National Dragster. And that was though everything was fine. And then I got to Columbus and the, the, the dragster for Columbus, they'd removed 200 points because we only went three rounds. I didn't go the th- full four rounds. And I said to Steve Gibbs, I says, why did you do this? He said, because you only went three rounds. I said, we would have went to four rounds. We would have meant the singles. 
He says, well, you should have. I told him Bernie Partridge was running the race. He told us not to. He said he didn't have the authority to do that. Should have went to the third round and come back and race each other. You don't get the point. They didn't want me to win that race, that, that event. Didn't want me to win you know, the championship. So anyway, it got down toward the end, and, and I, it looked like I'm going to win the, win the deal because I'm beating Beck pretty handily in these different races because I'm re- he's he's fin- he's going to be number two in IHRA and I'm going to be number one. And at IHRA, you had to compete in the last event to validate all your points. So if you don't go to the last race, you don't get any points. So NHRA put started up the World Finals. That was just their first event, and they put it on top of the IHRA finals in Bristol because they knew that I would not break my contract with Larry Carrier and go out to the world finals and I would not give up my world championship in the IHRA. I'm going to go there. And Beck chose to give up his points because he's probably going to be number two anyway. And he went to the finals at the world, at the world uh, fall nationals, won the race and comes into Ontario 400 and some points ahead of me. They were already calling him the world champion in the press because I had to win the race, set top speed and low ET national records when the race was over. In other words, if you set a record during the race and, and it, somebody breaks it during the race, you don't get any points. It's who comes out of the race with the record gets the points. So it was virtually going to be an impossibility for me to do all that and and be the champion. So more than likely, Beck was going to be the champion. Well, it didn't turn out that way because I, in fact, did win the race and I did set both ends of the speed and ET record and won it. And the way it all happened is really very uh, climatic. You know, it's uh, make a heck of a movie all the different things that happened during the race. One, uh, here's one story that was really great. The, the racers knew what was going on, and this was the one time that the racers really supported me in everything I was doing. They were giving me the lane choice in every round of qualifying, except the final round when I set the 250. I was racing against this guy. I'm forgetting who his name was now, but he wasn't in the show yet. And he, I'll never forget, he won the lane toss because that's how they did it then. And he said, Big Daddy, he said, I'd love to give you the good lane. He said, but I'm not in the show. And he said, you're in the show. He said, and they just oiled down that other lane. I got to take the good lane. I said, I understand completely. And uh, I'll never forget it. I made my burnout and all the track was just, it was just pure white from the, the rice ash where they'd put it down, you know. And I, I didn't see my competitor over there. So I backed up the car and I got back of the starting line and I and I pointed at Buster and he pointed over in the other lane and he said, you know, they give me the broke signal. The guy's broke. So I said, I want to go over to the other lane, to the right lane. I'm in the left lane. So Buster called the tower. Can Garlitz go over to the right lane? Absolutely not. He's got to run the lane he's in. So I went up and looked at it, and, and I'm building heat all this time, and I'm thinking, I shouldn't run this. I had a real special engine in there for this 250 mile an hour. 
And then finally I said to myself, well, I'll just step on it. And the minute it breaks the tires loose, I'll lift. Well, I'll tell you what, I stepped on that son of a gun and that front wheel, they come up about six or eight inches and it held and they wouldn't come down. They wouldn't come down. I'm going faster and faster. It's in low gear. Finally, at about half course, I said, I've got to shift this thing. And I shifted it and the, and the wheels come back down on the drag strip and two rooster tails of smoke come off the front wheels it's like a Piper Cub landed. And it went down through there, 250 miles an hour, 5.63 seconds. It ran perfect. They, they, they put spray on that rice ash, and it was sticking really 100%. And I say it was great. <laughs> that had to be a wild moment for you at the top end. Just that entire series of events and all that happens, and you, you know, the adrenaline wears off. You get out, you know, you almost probably ask yourself, did that really just happen? Well, they, you know, they radioed right down there that I went 250. And I, I mean, I hadn't got out of the car, and I already knew, but I knew it, it was fast. And it, because I had been running 249.30, so I knew that it was a lot faster than that. And it's, you know, I think that's another thing that people forget is that there used to be, you know, upwards, like you said, of three different organizations at any one time running nitro cars across the country so there's a lot of nitro cars that were out there running at different times almost regionally wasn't there yeah well in 1965 at the u.s fuel and gas championships in bakersfield california there was 120 top fuel cars entered in the race they ran a 64 car field on saturday the winner set out and they ran a 32-car field on Sunday, and the winner from Saturday night ran the winner of the 32-car field for the overall championship and the money. And meanwhile, on Sunday, they ran another 16-car consolation race. And we had cars in all of the races, my shop. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. They've, they've, made, they, they've made it so much better. That, like... You know, the the only thing that I can equate to that is, you know, Funny Car Chaos, Chris Graves, and they'll have, you know, they had 60-some, 70-some funny cars show up, but that's just not all just nitro cars. That's a mixture of cars, but could could you imagine these days if 120 nitro cars showed up at an NHRA national event? It, it could have all been live TV because they didn't even, they didn't stop the race if there was an oil down. See, they were pushing from the top end to fire them up, and that was good because that gave the people some show in between. In other words, while the, the cars were down at the end, as soon as they got the cars, knew there wasn't a crash, and the cars were in the way down in the shutoff area, they signaled to start the push start. So the two cars are pushed down. Now, if one of those cars on the previous run had dropped some oil, all they did was run out on the drag strip and put some speedy dry down in it and pressed it around with a broom while the cars were firing and getting up to the line and they ran off the track with a broom and you had to run down through there. But there wasn't that much oil put down. It didn't make that much difference because they didn't have these terrible oil downs like they have today. And they didn't have diapers or nothing on them either. The engine stayed together. That's just like, I'm picturing in my mind, the only way I can equate this for people to maybe understand is like, that's like, you know, when, when we used to, when football was played with leather helmets with no face masks, it was just a different era of, you know, 
toughness. That that's that's wild, you know. And, and the other thing I think is interesting is it, it shows you too how far safety has come because you know back in the you know the sixties and seventies, you guys are running nitro cars on tracks that you know I'd question taking a bracket car down these days. Yeah, well, it's it's been made safer. There's no question about that. A lot safer than it was. You but, know. Uh, a lot of people were killed in those slingshots, lots of them. And I want to shift gears a little bit. You know, you mentioned this area and talked about your museum because it's packed with so much cool stuff. I was just down there, you know, I went down when I was a kid when, you know, Bernstein first went 300. We got into the Gator Nationals and on our way, you know, back, we stopped at your museum. That was a big deal for me and my family. I went back during sick week this year and just kind of walking through it it's so amazing there's just there's so much in there when someone comes to your museum what's your favorite exhibit in the museum that people need to check out the one that you know big daddy's pick what's the one that they need to check out (laughs) it's the one when you walk right in the door swamp route one that's my favorite car because that was that was a set of 31 chevy frame rails built in my backyard under an oak tree and uh, it it was fast from the, the day that it was run, and it was fast the day it was taken out of service. And I ran that car from 1956 to 1962, and uh, it's a long life for a car. Of course, it got hurt, and it got nearly burned to death in it. And, uh, of course, we didn't know anything about blowers and the fact that they could pop and all that, you know, like they do. Uh, but when that car was unblown with the eight carburetors that would run 180 miles an hour on a real good track, that and you know it was an easy car to maintain. It, you one engine last all year. It was a it was a fun time, and uh, it burned 100% nitromethane, and without and it had stock stock pistons and stock rods in it. And you could do that. Whoa, <laughs> that's yeah. wild. But that's my favorite car because I, I was nobody, and that that car, when it went 176 miles an hour, got national publicity because they just couldn't believe that somebody from Florida had exceeded the record. Record was 169.11 at that time by the Speed Sport Roadster and that uh, drag strip in Tucson, and uh, and and Roger Huntington, he was a famous uh, engineer in Detroit. And he predicted that 169 miles an hour was going to be the absolute limit in the quarter mile using rubber tires for traction on asphalt. And, uh, you know, he was a little bit wrong about that and makes you wonder about some of those big bridges when you're going over them. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's one way to look at it. And, you know, if that's your favorite, you know, what's one of the more, like, I guess, interesting exhibits that someone, you know, if they come to the museum, they need to check out? Because there's just, there's so much cool stuff there. What's the next thing that someone else needs to check out that, you know, is really unique to your museum? Well, the Bustle Bomb is a very interesting car. That was the first car over 150 miles an hour in the quarter. Two engines. And uh, I have that. It doesn't have the body on it. It later had a body on, but at first it didn't have a body. When I got the car, I didn't get the body. And so it's um, that is an interesting exhibit. And, and the way it's shown, you can really see it up close. I think that's a good exhibit. 
Now, you know, kind of as drag racing continues to progress, what is what's a vehicle that you would love to be able to procure to put in your museum now that's out there? Either, you know, recently, you know, anything that that's not in the museum right now that you would love to have in there? Well, there's, there is a, there's definitely a vehicle out there that I still would love to have, and that's Romeo Palamides' little slingshot dragster that I raced against it in Houston, Texas in 1958, and Pete Ogden was driving it, and uh, it was a very fast little car, and it had a canopy on it in 1958, and that car is in a museum in California, in the Justice Brothers Museum. And uh, I came real close to getting it, but uh, they outbid me on it. Um, it was for sale at, at the Hot Rod Reunion in um, Bowling Green. And uh, they got it and took it back there. They've had it a number of years now. I'd really like to. That's, a, that's one car that I would actually trade one of my swamp rats for to get. So I'd really like for them to make me a trade on that i think that's a car that belongs in this drag racing museum because romeo palamides is in the museum and i raced them there that was a big california challenge and that car was so ahead of its time with its canopy romeo was really a smart guy and it belongs here in the drag racing museum in florida Interesting. That, that I, I was figuring it'd, it'd be something, you know, maybe some one of the more modern vehicles. But it's it's interesting you went that route. That that would be a cool car to see there for sure. No, I'm a history buff. I like the old stuff. Now, we'll, we'll go back, you know, on the on the history route of things. You know, th- through the years, you know, you've had some some tough rivals. You know, through all your championships and whatnot. Who was you know bar none the toughest person that you? had to race through years in top fuel that you know that that joker to your batman who is that person well uh, it would def- definitely have to be shirley Muldowney. she uh she was a tough egg and uh, she won a lot of races she she beat me our our win loss record uh is almost straight up 50 50 that says a lot uh don perdon was tough don't never kid you he was a tough but he, he didn't stay in dragsters long. He mostly stayed in funny cars, where Shirley always ran a dragster after she come out of the funny car. And then in the early days, uh, before uh, Muldowney, the Karamasinis was tough. He was a tough egg. And, uh, he's probably the longest uh, top fuel driver, the longest career actual driving of anybody ever. Yeah, to this day, I don't think anybody actually knows how old he is. Yeah, because he, he he was driving top fuel in 1959, and he quit, what, two years ago? Yeah. 21 or 20? Yep. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a long time, so 59. Let's see. That, do, we'll do the math here. Do over 40 years i know that much it looks to me like we got 72 years <laughs> 70 72 yeah. years a literal lifetime spent behind the butterfly of a top of a nitro vehicle that's that's wild it 
it's funny you mentioned Shirley Muldowney. I was wondering if, you know, if she was going to be the one that you said, because again, I, I'm, I love watching the, you know, the old Diamond P Motorsports, Steve Evan interviews of drag racing, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. And when she, when he would ask her about you, like the way that she spoke, it was, you know, her tone changed. It was like, she could be, I'm not going to say happy, but she would change and be very serious anytime she mentioned you. I think that kind of plays in, like you said, be that rivalry and that respect that you guys had for each other. I I don't know. You know, I'm not sure about all of that. Fair enough. Now, you know, we talked about this in the pre-call you know, the, the electric dragster deal, you know, you've, you've been kind of, you know, one of the pioneers on that for a little bit, you know, kind of tell us about where your, your electric dragster journey is currently. Well, you know, I got the idea for the electric dragster over that Daryl Gwynn deal. You know, Daryl Gwynn and I had a couple of electric dragsters. They were just actually just glorified go car, uh, golf carts with uh, dragster bodies on them. And we did the Mantra series and uh, at the national events and raised money for the Spinal Cord Injury Foundation. But we wanted to go fast. We wanted to have these cars go about 100 miles an hour, but we, we couldn't because Daryl was that way he drives them with that little joystick like on his wheelchair. It wasn't feasible for him to do that. It, they, they would run off the drag strip. So we had to slow the cars down to about 32 miles an hour. We did that with batteries. So when the series was over, I said to the guy that built the two cars, uh, Mike Gary, I said, Mike, how fast do you think we could go if we took the gloves off? He said, I believe we could reach 200 miles an hour. I said, well, let's build it. And so Swamp Rat 37 was born. And uh, we quickly raised the record to 174, then 176 then 184, then 185, 60. And that's where, and we lowered the ET to 7.25 during that period of time. And that's about three or four years went by. And we just couldn't get it to go any faster. So then I built 38, which was a much lighter car with one motor and chain driven. And Right away, I went 189, and I was just getting ready to make a really good run because that was a warm-up run with low power. And I went up the line and made a really good move, and and it broke a hub. We had our own homemade hubs on the car, and the problem was they had changed the welding rod. You take the 680, which I've been using for years and years, which is a really good welding rod. They'd outsource that damn thing to China, and it wasn't the same rod anymore. And so that's why my hub broke. Well, we got all that fixed, and, and COVID hit, and everything went upside down. I got real sick and nearly died, and the last thing I was worried about was an electric car. And then it took a long recovery after that. And so by the time I got out of the recovery, this guy, Steve Huff, had went 201. So it's... Uh, Kind of took the edge off of it. I didn't worry about it too much because 200 had been eclipsed, and so he got the glory for that. But then I got excited again, and I, I got a hold of a new motor that would rev higher, 
and we'll build a new back half on the car with this new motor into my standard drive rear like I have in the Swamp Rat 34 with the real narrow wheels and the real low profile and a small car, lightweight. Car weighs 1,400 pounds, and then I get in it. And uh, we were going to run it at Gainesville, but they wouldn't let me because it wasn't certified, and I didn't have a license, so I couldn't run it. And they let Huff run his car because he had all that. And so since then, I went to driving school for them. I've made 15 runs up at Royal Hills Driving School, passed all the tests. I've, I have personally mailed my package of my driving stuff to Glenn Cromwell at the NHRA. He should have got it yesterday. And, uh, and they should be issuing my license. They came in and looked at my car, and it needed they, – they, the rules changed last year, and my car needs two parachutes now instead of one. So we're going to put that on there, and there was one switch they didn't like. It was a, a toggle switch that needed to be pushed full. I've done that. And they said my fire suit needs to be a 15 instead of a 5. So I've got the 16 fire – 15 fire suit. So I'm about ready to go, but I'm going to go this weekend – Saturday down to West Palm Beach. They're having their last race down there. And this is an IHRA track, so they don't give a, sh a damn about any of this stuff. They just want Big Daddy to come down and make runs. They know I can drive the car, and they know the car's safe. I've been there before. So we're going to be running it down there. And let's hope, hope, I'm hoping it's going to go at least 203 miles an hour. That's absolutely wild. All you know, kind of the, the whole story behind it, but then you know, going two hundred plus in, in an electric vehicle was just that, that's the new that that is the new frontier. Yeah, yeah, want to go two hundred? What's it been like, kind of developing and playing with this stuff? Does it remind you of when you were you know first developing and you know making these big strides in you know nitro racing? Yeah, one of the differences is. I don't have as much input on the electrical end of it. I'm, I'm the chassis guy and the drivetrain and the driver. Uh, I know a little bit about the electrical part, but not near enough. I'm learning. Uh, an interesting side note here, my father was an electrical engineer at Westinghouse, and he was on the team that invented the, the electric iron and the electric fan. So I guess he's, he's up there smiling. That that's definitely a, a you know I thought I'd read that in one of your bios. That's definitely an interesting tie-in to all of that. You know, it comes full circle, right? Yeah. Now, what's your take on EVs in the sport of drag racing? Now, I have my own view. I want to hear what you have to say about you know these cars potentially coming in and changing the face of the sport. I mean, TV changing it. Yeah, like that was that's the question. Yeah, like how are yeah, you? Yeah, well, it, it that's a two-edged sword. It it made the sport much bigger and faster, but it drove the little guys out because the the sponsored guys, the big sponsored guys that were getting the TV coverage, they they got the ink and the little guys didn't and uh I, I remember a particular race this English town. I was doing television at the time, 
for a diamond piece Ford. And uh, a big name car got outrun by a lesser name car. And it would have really been good publicity for the lesser name car to got a little publicity for outrunning the big name car. But they told me, go interview the crew chief from the, the big name car and see what happened. I said, what happened? He got his ass outrun. That's what happened. Because both cars ran good, but the, the no-name car ran better. And that is a perfect example of what happened in drag racing because the big-name car had the big sponsors on it, and they had to be covered, see? And so when the big-name guy got outrun, they had to go give him television coverage anyway. That's not a, something that I thought of on how it changed the sport, but that definitely makes sense. Well, yeah, and I, I lived it, and, and that's one of the reasons I finally quit television. I didn't like that. It had a lot of that in there. Yeah, the, again, yeah, they want the uh, the sponsors and the ratings. I, I was never allowed to go interview who I wanted to, when I wanted to, who should have got the blood blessing, who would have made the story interesting. Now, speaking of interesting stories, you know, we briefly talked, you know, we talked about your electric dragster, and electric vehicles in drag racing what's what's your take on electric vehicles coming to the sport well i'm gonna tell it like it is uh, a lot of people aren't going to like this but we are going to be light years away from everybody having an electric car in fact very few people are going to be able to own electric cars for quite a while for two or three reasons number one they're very expensive but number two, the charging system that it takes, the amount of electricity that it takes to charge these vehicles, we don't have near the grid to take care of that. There were three or four people can have an electric car on your street, but everybody can't have one or the, or the grid would be overloaded. That's number one. Number two, because of the crazies in Washington, they won't build any coal, oil, our gas-fired generating plants. So even if we had the grid, where are you going to get the electricity from to charge the batteries? You ain't going to get it from the solar panels or the windmills. You can trust me on that and go. You can you can put that in the bank. It ain't going to happen. You've got to have coal, oil, and gas-fired generating plants. And they haven't built one in years, and they ain't going to build one as long as the greenies are in charge. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely the, the power side of it, I think, is something that a lot of people, uh, you know, don't understand. It. How it would affect drag racing is yeah. that it went to all, you know, a lot of EVs at the track. There's no way to charge the cars between rounds because it's it's a pretty big task to charge one of those things. And, and as far as the drag racing goes, all, they, can have, they can have a couple of classes for electric cars. It wouldn't hurt nothing. They have a dragster class, and then they can have, they can have their, their stock automobiles from the factory. And I think they've already got an electric junior dragsters, don't they? Yeah, yeah. The, the Coughlins have one up here in Columbus that they run. And so, and, and so, so we'll have two or three classes for electric cars and if people want to play with electric cars they can and uh, it ain't going to affect the, the sport there's going to be a lot of people like to watch them 
it, it's interesting. I, I've got to see both the electric Copo and the electric Cobra Jet run. And yeah. they're interesting. They're impressive cars to watch go down the track. They've got some rip to them. Yeah, they're they're fun to watch. I I like I like to drive mine. I enjoy it. What's the big? I call it, I call it the quiet one. Yeah, I was gonna say that it's it's got to be a different sensation versus having you know all that 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 nitro motor thumping behind you, but you get to feel the same sort of acceleration. I can hear the tires screeching. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 different. It's definitely different to see when those cars make a hit. Well, Don, our, our time is coming to an end on the Dragzine podcast, and I always like to ask my guests a fun question, you know, something that's, you know, a little outside the box, a little bit different. So here's my question for you. If you could go back to any era in drag racing that you've raced in and compete again, which era would you go back to? The 74-75 era. The cars were fast. They went 240 miles an hour. We finally reached 250. It was not expensive to run one. There was lots of cars to race. They had plenty of cars. There wasn't a shortage of cars. And uh, it wasn't really that dangerous. And these cars at those speeds could run almost any drag strip in the country. And they didn't have to have all kinds of tons of safety equipment, helicopters and everything, you know, and jaws of life. And it was a nice period because you got to go to a lot of places and meet a lot of different people. And there wasn't 24 national events to, to deal with. They had four or five national events, and that's plenty of national events. And the rest of the time, you could just go to regular drag strips and have a good time. That was my favorite time, 74, 75. There you have it, Don. If I had the time machine, I'd, I'd hook you up with that and get, let you be able to go back and run then. Well, I also like to give my guests their opportunity to, you know, thank who they need to thank, talk about their sponsors, and tell people what they have going on, you know, websites to visit of theirs and whatnot. So, Don, the floor is yours, my friend. Tell us where people can learn about what you have going on and, uh, you know, who you need to thank. Well, the uh, you know, I, I have to say that, the, one of the sponsors that had really stuck by me was Goodyear, and they've supplied me with tires since they've been in business. They're a really great, nice company, nice people, and uh, they're just great people to work with. And uh, and I and you know with electric car you don't have near the, the amount of people involved that you do with a, a regular car, but you know we we uh, you know some of the uh, uh, G-Force helped me a lot, and then uh, it's race quip with the safety equipment. They've been good to me, good good stuff. And, uh, and you know, I just like to say also the museum is, is doing well. We have lots of visitors, and I appreciate everybody coming to, coming to, to visit us. And we do our best to have a nice show here, and we keep the exhibits revolving. So there's always something different to see. So. Just remember, we're open seven days a week, and we're only closed on Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I got to say, folks, put the Don Garlitz Museum of Drag Racing on your bucket list. I've been there a couple times, and it's just, it's so cool to walk through there and, you know, just see the history of the sport and how it involved in the interactive exhibits. It's, uh, it's definitely some awesome stuff. But Don... Okay. Thank you so much Thank for you so much. coming on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye.